We don't believe that traditional forms of uh, education do a particularly great job of setting young people up um, for, for career success. What does it look like to be willing to expose to other pathways, to be willing to truly show someone what's best for them in their journey? We are big believers in designing for that most marginalized worker first, or that most marginalized learner first, and then you can reach everyone with that. Welcome to the Horizons podcast, where we take the conversations from JFF's annual Horizons conference and move them forward. I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield. Today on the Horizons podcast, big ideas from some ambitious players, entrepreneurs betting that they can use the power of business to help build a sustainable workforce by addressing the needs of workers and employers at scale. Let's start on the stage at JFF's annual Horizons conference. Jenna McGregor, senior editor at Forbes, digs into the why as the founders of some ambitious startups share their missions and methods. The second part of this segment features Thomas Brunskill, CEO and co-founder of Forage. But we begin with Muriel Claussen, who has built a communication tool for employers and workers that eliminates the need for email and even smartphone applications. She's the founder of Anthill, which is a text-based self-service tool for what you call the deskless worker. Why do this with text messaging? Why not use an app? How does this help you scale and address that group of workers in a way that they're not being you know, helped today? Everyone on our team are former deskless workers themselves who built this product, designing it with deskless workers. And we use the most inclusive technology out there, which is text messaging. And you have to build really kind of robust technology on the back end to make something that simple work. But when you're building for kind of the most marginalized worker, that's when you can have these really cool innovations and find simpler ways to solve really sticky problems. Yeah, I mean, these are people that, you know, the people who are forklift operators, who are working on a manufacturing line, and just not, when we talk about the future of work, I think too often we're talking about people who work at a desk, people like you and I who can solve our issues by just going onto your laptop or emailing HR. The diversity here is, is incredible, just a reminder of what kind of power entrepreneurs have who come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Tom, who's um, our resident Aussie here on stage, you work with the idea of pre-skilling. Forage kind of gives young workers like a preview almost, uh, an exposure to the company that they are thinking about working for. What big problem are you trying to solve with this? But also, how do you reckon with the idea of this being maybe another element that just adds to the job application process, that someone needs to go through this class or this course in order to be considered for a job? Yeah, what we do at Forage is we work with 
large employers, employers like BCG, uh, SAP, Lululemon, Walmart, to create free open access job simulations uh, for young people to, um, you know, preview uh, different careers. Uh, the problem that we're looking to solve, I suspect most people here intimately understand, which is that giant gap between the world of learning and the world of work. And we don't believe that traditional forms of education do a particularly great job of setting young people up for career success. And indeed, maybe that's not the purpose of education. But what we do think is that employees are really uniquely positioned to educate and invest in the development of young people before they get to the recruitment process so that they can make more informed, deliberate career decisions, which ultimately the employer, uh, as well as the, the candidate, benefits from. But kind of to your question, it, it's a tension. It's a tension within what we're building. Are we adding extra burden? Are we adding extra stress to the job application process? First and foremost, what we do is not a prerequisite to the job application process. What we're focused on is how do you enable companies to educate talent at scale and do it in an equitable and accessible way. So we like to look at our product as a form of education. That education just happens to be free and authored by some of the world's top companies. Welcome back to our studio. I'm joined by our special guest, Dr. Mallory Dwinal Palish, CEO of Craft Education System and Chancellor of Reach University. Craft collects and analyzes the data to help school systems bring in talented teachers, and Reach University gets workers learning while on the job to earn degrees and certifications to advance their careers. JFF Ventures recently invested in Craft. Welcome, Mallory, and thank you so much for joining the conversation today. Tamisha, thanks so much for having me. Great. So we're going to dive in. And right now, Mallory, we're going to set the stage for this conversation with the why. So why do we even need an entrepreneurial approach, even though we have very well-established education and workforce systems? I've spent my whole career working in K-12 and workforce development. And these are two huge public systems that have been around for centuries in our country. And there's this quotation that really resonates with me from Nelson Mandela. It always seems impossible until it's done. And I think entrepreneurship is an exercise in that act of pushing back what we think is possible and impossible. For my career, I spent the first half of it being told that what we believed should happen was just impossible. It wasn't a question of right or wrong, if we could agree or not agree. It's just that it could not be done. And so we turned to creating two new ventures, Reach University and then the craft education system, to do what we were told could not be done. And now that we're seeing it being done, not just by us, but by others, I see the power of entrepreneurship as being what, what made that possible. Oh, that's great. And I think it's that boldness of possibility that's really important to be able to think about how we think about existing systems and push ahead. So with these entrepreneurs aren't just expanding access in this particular realm, but also finding creative pathways to advancement for all workers. How do you see concepts like Ant Hill changing the experience for this particular group of workers? And why should we even care to go in that direction? So Muriel said it really well when she said that the focus here is on deskless workers needing deskless access to training and software. So this idea that we can only train people who can be sitting at their desk is leaving large swaths of the workforce out of the equation. 
And she made reference to groups like forklift operators and people that are doing some of those more credential-based professions. And that's critically important. But that's not the only place we see deskless workers. So Reach University targets specifically teachers. And then Kraft is working with teachers, starting to think through nurses and other professions where you have to have a college degree. You have to have a teaching credential. You have to have a nursing credential. But the challenge is still the same of these are deskless workers. Teachers do not learn and they do not do their job sitting at a desk, right? Learning on the job as a teacher is in that moment when you're having a conversation with a kid out in the hallway or when you're working in the front of the class and you see a student disengaged. Software that doesn't allow for feedback for the deskless worker, whether they are doing credential work like forklift operators or bachelor's or higher level work like teachers and nurses leaves huge segments of our economy untapped. And it's about helping people tap into different skills that different jobs need that you're not just sitting behind the desk. And how do you reimagine what that education looks like? That's exactly right. We need those people. They are the backbone of our economy. They are a critical part of our economy. And we want them to be skilled. We want them to be successful. We have to face the reality that then we have to reach them where they are, which is not sitting in front of a desk. Mm-hmm. And so what is the next generation of workers going to be demanding? And why is it important that employers are listening? I think employers and training providers need to really pay attention to how savvy the current generation of worker is when it comes to the ROI on their educational training. So in the past, we used to be able to say, you know, first of all, the world was less complex and training was more affordable. And so we had a fairly liquid labor market. People were going to go get their degrees. They were going to go get their credentials and they would be there to fill those positions. But as the world has become more complicated, two things have happened. One, you need more specific training and more technical training for any given profession than we used to. Even if it's not a college degree, right? Forklift operators need to have very specific technical training. The second thing is that the cost of that training has been on a runaway train. It has become way too expensive. And so we have people looking around questioning, you need me to get this credential, but I'm going to spend $80,000 getting it to then get a job that's going to pay me $45,000. Those numbers don't clear. And so I think it is important for us to understand that it's not just the right thing to do, that we create affordable pathways into and up through the economy. It's also good business. These employers need skilled workers. These training institutions will not exist unless they can attract people to train. And the employee today is far more savvy about the return on investment of their training relative to their their job. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we often think of ROI and return in, of return on investment as, as a business case we have to make to businesses. But I think today we also have to make it on the other side to consumers and workers and learners who are actually taking in and oftentimes like footing the bill in terms of their resources, their money, their time and their energy into their education. Tamisha, that's so right. And it's not just the sticker price of the cost of tuition, right? I'm, when I talk to students, I'll hear them say things like, it's the fact that I'm going to be four years out of the workforce. It's the fact that I'm going to have to arrange childcare for my kids and that's going to cost money. I'm going to have to pay to drive to and from these trainings and gas is expensive. It is opportunity cost. It is ROI. It is all of these terms that we always think about as something businesses think about. But consumers today and trainees today are actually just as savvy and they're making the same decisions. Yeah, and so 
Next, we're going to hear from Hamoon Iktari, CEO of FutureFit AI. And Hamoon is using artificial intelligence and data to help workers see career pathways ahead long before layoffs or other reasons to look for a new job. Moderator Jenna McGregor introduces him. I know there's a lot of applications, but one of the ones that I think is interesting is the way that you provide a bridge between employers and local workforce boards to help them think about how do we outskill folks? How do we help give them the tools they need to position them for jobs well before any kind of layoffs or job changes might happen? Talk about how startups can provide that bridge, can help with scaling that problem. Yeah, thank you. And it's incredible to be here with this group of entrepreneurs. And maybe just as quick about a personal context, I'm an immigrant kid who would have been born in, in the midst of a war, moved after about 15 years to this side of the world without knowing English. Within two weeks of starting school, 9-11 happened. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about journeys and transitions and pathways, both on a life and, and work context. And when you think about, I spent a couple of years living in Barbados. When you zoom out of an island like Barbados in the Eastern Caribbean, what you see is a whole bunch of islands with water in between them. And the system we operate in collectively in this room looks very much like that. You've got on one side a lot of islands that are opportunity providers, employers of various kinds, including our own organizations as employers. And every day there are new employers emerging. On the other side of the ocean, you've got talent providers. And those are local workforce agencies that we've worked with through our partnership with National Association of Workforce Boards. Those are state governments and programs. Those are emerging boot camps and training providers. They're all talent providers of various kinds, higher education systems that have talent ready for opportunity. And on both sides of this, you've got new islands being built every single day with very little bridging infrastructure that's being built in between. And so our focus is to use the power of AI to build connective bridges in between. And the way we go about doing that, we found working with partners, is there are three things that are critical. One is you want a personalized GPS for the individual in their hands that doesn't overwhelm them. Number two, you need a one-stop shop for the organization where they can pull in assessments, careers, skills, learning, jobs, and resources. And then number three, you need to be able to actually systematically track journey data. Mm -hmm. So for which kinds of people to get to which kinds of destinations, what kind of supports helps them do that? Yeah. We do that helping them get into jobs and then transition into future opportunities as well where it makes sense. Welcome back to our studio. So layoffs are one scenario for the worker to consider, especially today with layoffs happening in droves in some sectors. People are also making decisions to leave their current positions based on other factors. So who do these bridges that Hamoon is building benefit the most, right? We hear a lot about technology outsourcing the human worker, but how else could AI also serve to both protect and connect workers to other opportunities? Like you said, we often talk about AI and automation as being good for the employer. I think there's actually a world where if it's deployed well, it's good for the worker today. So my generation, millennials and younger, they don't believe that they're going to have the same job or the same company for the rest of their lives. They know that they are going to move between companies. The question is, 
Will they have the skills to make those moves? And will there be transparency that gives them a signal as to when it's time to move and where they need to move towards? Whether that's because layoffs are coming or because new sectors are opening up, they're going to have high paying jobs. Today's worker wants that visibility and they want that fluidity for themselves. And so in my mind, the bridges Hamoon is talking about create that liquidity, which is its own kind of security for today's worker who doesn't think about security as the promise that they'll be with the same company in 25 years. And so I think he is exactly right. And that when we talk about using technology to improve the workforce, we have to be serious about it being something that also improves not just what employers have access to, what employees and workers have access to in the form of being able to see where the market is going, being able to get the training they need to get there in a way that's affordable and that makes sense for them, those are the bridges that we need to invest in. And it's it's a win-win. It's liquidity for the employer and it's security for the trainee wherever they go next. Well, as we can see, there are some interesting innovations out there getting the attention of entrepreneurs and their funders. The last question that Jenna posed to the panel was, what is keeping more entrepreneurs from solving these issues? Here again is Muriel Clausen of Ant Hill, followed by Hamoon Ekdiari, CEO of FutureFit AI. So I always come back to access, and I think that Uh, When we're having these conversations, when we're approaching these problems as researchers, educators, entrepreneurs in companies, um, I think we have to just constantly ask ourselves this idea we just talked about, how many people are actually going to be able to interact with that in the fiber of the way that they work and live? We are big believers in designing for that most marginalized worker first or that most marginalized learner first, and then you can reach everyone with that. Um, But I think that is the biggest piece. Another obstacle that I think we can overlook is everyone in this room has decided to go into an area that is such a big, complex, wide opportunity. And there are so many things we can invest our time in. And I think one of the biggest obstacles to actually scaling our impact is staying focused in the piece that we've decided to invest and then so that we can more effectively partner with partners. I got really excited about some conversations I had on the side of people saying, you know what, I want to try to actually own less myself and partner more with other kind of constituents I've met here because I know that when I'm focused in on on what I do best as an educator or as an innovator or a technologist and then partnering with these other folks, we can go so much further in the scale of impact that we can have. I think that's a conversation I want to be having more here as well. I mean, I'm going to go to you next. Yeah, so I would say the first thing, maybe one of the implicit elements in this space that doesn't get as much talked about publicly is the vested interests that drive some of our decision-making collectively, right? So when we work in this back to the island analogy and maybe on the theme of the conference, the need to see beyond the horizons of our own islands. When we talk to a lot of organizations, natural tendencies to say, we will only make the pathways visible to the people who come to us that we are supporting and the programs that we might be offering. What does it look like to rethink that? What does it look like to be willing to expose to other pathways, to be willing to truly show someone what's best for them in their journey, whether or not it runs through our island? And then maybe quickly, a second one is around speed. What would it look like next time we're back at Horizons that especially the larger organizations in the room have committed to a 100-day policy? From the first conversation you have with a startup company to your decision of whether or not you go ahead, are you on the ground or no, thank you, within 100 days. 
the cost to the company to you is implicit, but it's still a very real cost of time, energy, and effort when things take months and sometimes years. And the cost to the innovators is significant when those processes drag on. So take a look inside to say, are procurement, engagement, and partnership policies set up to be able to go from zero to 100 days from first conversation to on the ground? Needing to move a lot faster. If we're yeah. going to actually solve the scale of the challenges we're all talking about here. What about you, Tom? When we think about creating new pathways into the world of work here in the US, I find that there is like this obsession uh, with upskilling and reskilling. Like, how do you retrain? How do you create new pathways for a 30 year old, for a 40 year old worker into different lines of work, particularly when we talk about promoting uh, using reskilling or um, upskilling as a form of driving upward social mobility? And that's fine. But the taboo topic that I don't understand why no one talks about is like, what are we doing in the K-12 space? What are we doing with kids in terms of setting them up for career success earlier and earlier? You know, the basic logic that I have is that the earlier you can empower students and expose students to, you know, different employees, different careers and whatnot, you're going to have disproportionately better results on the back end. So while I get the focus on the reskilling and upskilling, I'd love to see more work being done in the K-12 space in terms of setting young folks up for career success. Welcome back to our studio. That was an interesting place for the conversation to end on the stage with a charge for educators starting long, long before higher education. I want to go back, though, to what Hamoon was talking about, about moving faster to solutions. And my question for you is, how can we all get there more quickly and deliberately? And could the entrepreneurial approach really prompt real systems change? I think entrepreneurship is well poised to create this change earlier. There are already inside of the K-12 space a couple of big systems and institutions in place that could create these early access points for students when they're in middle and high school. Before I actually went into higher education, I worked as a middle and high school teacher and then as the leader of a high school that focused on job embedded learning. And there are three huge institutions that have already been established within our K-12 system. The first is career and technical education, oftentimes called CTE. The second one is dual enrollment between high schools and community colleges, which are one of our biggest sources of technical and skills-based training. And then the third coming out of the U.S. Department of Labor are all of the apprenticeship funds that we have specifically dedicated towards youth. So those are three big systems running through K-12, community college, and Department of Labor. And going back to, I think, the original quotation that brought me into entrepreneurship in the first place is, you can have established systems and institutions that are still not reaching their full potential, and we assume that it's impossible that any more can be done with it. And entrepreneurship has the potential to unlock that. And so, in my mind, yes, K-12 can and should be a space where this is happening sooner. And entrepreneurship that focuses particularly on creating more meaningful opportunities, more connectivity, and more efficiency in places like CTE, dual enrollment with community colleges, and youth apprenticeship is the place to start for us to get there. 
I think that's really true. And how do you make sure that there are opportunities that are equitable for those bridges to happen between those very traditional ways and opportunities that already exist for providing pathways for young people with entrepreneurial endeavors that are more forward-thinking? And what is that mechanism, right, that's necessary to bring those two groups together to then make sure that things are connected and that people have the access that they need going forward? That's exactly right. And I think anyone who has certainly worked in a high school, but anyone who's ever talked to a teenager has heard them say to you, well, when am I ever going to need this, right? When do I need to know how to do this? Why should I bother learning this? And so it's not just that it creates greater connectivity to the workforce. Even those skills that we think of as being the traditional realm of K-12, reading, writing, numeracy, those spaces are also elevated when students feel a relevance of why do I need to learn how to do this? If they're going out into the field every day and exploring different careers and seeing where it's useful, everybody benefits. I agree. And I think I'm really excited about being able to have conversations and opportunities between JFF and entrepreneurs and other people to really figure out how to make those connections happening. So I want to thank you, Mallory, for joining the conversation today. And thank you for the work that both Craft and Reach University are doing. And I look forward to being in more conversation and working with you in the future. Tamisha, thanks so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Horizons podcast. Please let us know what you thought about today's conversation and share a comment wherever you find your podcasts. And I hope you will join us in person in New Orleans for our 2023 conference, Horizons, presented by JFF. Early registration is open now at horizons.jff.org. The theme this year is Without Limits. I look forward to the conversation on our next podcast. For now, I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield.